Hello, everyone. Um, back again. And the recording, uh, the podcast I'm going to do this week is how to start your aesthetic practice from scratch and how to do it, you know, without family money or a big marketing budget, because the reality is most of us, when we first start, are broke. Um, we've got medical school debt. We've got all kinds of uh, responsibilities. Uh, I had a wife and a child um, and no real income. So there are a lot of things to think about, and I'm going to try to just talk about the most important things to uh, think about. Now, location. You know, I always tell people, you got to weigh out all of the aspects of um, location because there's a philosophy. I, I want to go to an affluent community, and certainly that's helpful if you're able to find a relatively affluent community. I can tell you also that everybody, no matter where you go, is going to say, oh, my environment is so hyper-competitive. Everybody's environment is hyper-competitive. It's just the way it goes. Uh, you know, you're dealing with uh, fee-for-service medicine. You're dealing with people who are writing a check for a lot of your services. and Naturally, there are so many people who have left this, uh, you know, uh, left traditional medicine um, that there's competition for that. So, but my recommendation typically, you know, whether it's a dermatologist, facial plastic surgeon, or plastic surgeon, is to think about what's going to serve you long term for you and your family. Do you have family support? Where do you want to live? Those sorts of things. Once you narrow down the geographic, then you make that decision, you make there's no perfect geographic and you know um I, I you know there are some false misconceptions about you know going to an affluent community and that's going to float practice but the reality is you go where you want to go and then you you make it work um you know my mentor back in the day dr Dean tardy had a lecture he used to give on the blue and white protocol slides on how to start a practice and when I was finishing my fellowship 30 years ago, he went through this. And, and the, the old Kodachrome slides of his were probably 20 years old at that. And the point he made to the residents was that these slides are old and they are still relevant. And what I'm going to tell you today is just as relevant as it was 50 years ago, 30 years ago. And, you know, he always said you want to be affable, you want to be available, and you want to be able or capable. Now, um, granted, uh, there are things that have changed. Social media has changed things and makes things a little different. But it's still the same. The process is still the same. And this is not a boomer talking and, oh, things are changed. Because, quite frankly, back in the day, I didn't have Botox. We didn't have you know, non-surgical options to get patients in the door in skincare. You know, we had to earn our keep in, a, in an emergency room, but it's all the same thing. And I know it's the same thing because I have literally men mentored um, hundreds of young doctors to go out and try to build their practice. Um, and even till recently, and I was just in Las Vegas at a meeting and I sat next to former fellow of mine, Dr. Ziad Katrib, at, um, 
at Sphere. And he said to me, and he's gotten himself insanely busy in just five or six years. And he said to me, and I quote, Dr. Williams, I did just what you said to do. I did exactly what you said to do. I went out. And so I'm going to talk to you more about this in detail. Dr. Slaughter, who joined our practice, has done the same thing. Dr. Steve Danes, I just talked to him. He's in California. He's been, I think he was my fellow in 2012. He did the same thing, same process, and it works, even though you may be able to leverage, enhance it a little bit about, um, you know, with social media. The approach to starting your practice and being successful are the same. So what I always tell our former fellows is, look, your first five years is survival as a facial plastic surgeon or an aesthetic dermatologist, whatever you want to call it, plastic surgeon, without tarnishing your reputation by doing things you don't want to do. Like, for example, facial plastic surgeons, you don't want to be known as a uh, otolaryngologist. So if you start doing some sinus work, you will get, um, you will get uh, tarnished along those lines and it will compromise your ability to market yourself as a patient person. So survival is in the beginning. So let's talk about, you know, finance, because this is always a big, big issue. One is I had no money. I had debt in back in the day in the order of about $50,000, which now would be about a quarter million, maybe 300000 So I had my share of debt. I had my no family money. I had a wife and a kid. And I started out stone cold on my own in a community where I didn't know a soul. And it's certainly not an affluent community. And that's where I am now in upstate New York and Albany, New York. Um, one thing I did right uh, as a resident is I did not accumulate a lot of student debt. I lived pretty frugal and conservatively. In fact, when I first went to practice, we bought a very low level. And how did I buy it? Because I bought a house as a resident with 3% down, FHA mortgage, live with it well within my means. So I started out, you know, not being over leveraged with debt. But so we bought an extremely modest house, extremely modest. And my doctor friends were all going out buying expensive homes because now they were attending physicians. And what I always tell people is when you start in practice, now you're in the big room. Like you may have been the best resident or best fellow or, or prestigious training program, but you're starting all over. You know, it's like it's like when you play college basketball and you go to like college football, the NFL, you're in the big leagues. And now is not the time to let your guard down or rest on your laurels or rest on your training or those sorts. So number one goal is to live within your means in the beginning and and, and work on accumulating some sort of revenue stream. Now, I was able to work a loan out hospital, um, a line of credit, and I never I never used my whole line of credit. I I could throw the numbers out there, but that doesn't matter. Um, you know, I, I think I had a line of credit of $120,000. Uh, I didn't have to pay interest for a year. I never got more than 50 or 60 into it because I lived well within my means and I went out and I did moonlight. <clears throat> I moonlighted in a couple of what I call dock in the box, you know, clinics, anything to get a revenue stream. I was able to, you know, after about a year, I was able to work a deal to work at the VA, um, you know, and I did that for 10 years, one day a week. 
anything I could do to build my practice and generate a revenue stream so I could feed my family. Um, so there are a lot of exciting opportunities. I, I know former fellows of mine who have done, you know, one of these doctor on call per diem things where you cover the ER. That wasn't available years ago. You just have to work the ER and, you know, hopefully get a laceration for a couple hundred bucks here and there. Um, but now they have locum tenants, things you can do. Uh, you know, I have one of my fellows who won four or five days a month, flew to a place that was a few hours away, worked local tenants in ENT, anything to do to get a buck in the door so that you could start building your aesthetic or, you know, facial plastic practice. And you need to basically, you know, hustle like you're broke. Um, so that's the most important thing. And never, ever, ever uh, being complacent or taking a position of complacency. Always acting like you, you know, never know where your next meal is going to come from. Um, and it's a different mindset, you know. It's a different mindset from going out and joining a big, big orthopedic practice where you got a hundred partners and everyone's busy as heck and they, and, and they have all these Medicaid patients push it down to you. And, and, but there, you know, the difference is if you uh, develop your set of practice correctly, you will have something that is a much nicer situation than your orthopedic buddies. who are still taking call up in the middle of the night at the age of 50. So, um, it does require a little bit of a different mindset from you know, being a doctor who's expecting to get paid a certain amount to developing to developing a business. So, you know, going into a business uh, development mindset, more of a less from an entitlement, more to a survival mentality. Um, and the reason why is that if you look at if you, you know, do this, it ends up in this successful. You are more of a small businessman, woman, than you are a medical practice. You're looking to grow a business and built on people, policies, systems, procedures, culture. And the reason that the bulk of the wealth in this country is in the hands of the small businessman is because the small businessman or small businesswoman, okay, doesn't know what tomorrow is going to bring. So they work on growing their business and their revenue, but live well within means because there are ups and downs in the economy. Now, very different than the average physician who goes out to join the antique group or goes out to join um, you know, a multi-specialty group or an orthopedic group. In that situation, you're the orthopedic surgeon, you're making X, you expect you're gonna make X plus three or three or four or 5% for the next 30 years. And so, the mindset of developing your own aesthetic practice is very different. You have to anticipate ups and downs in the economy, and you have to have more of a business person mindset because no one is going to send in your group, okay, is going to send you patients. So, meaning, if I join, let's say if I, if I go out on my own, it's really hard to get that face of patient, or really, really hard. In fact, it's hard to get a Botox patient in the door at the beginning. Less hard, but it's hard. But it's, you know, no. So, say you join a senior facial plastic surgeon or you join a plastic surgeon who's doing uh, mommy maker, makeover, mommy tuck, whatever. 
your senior partner is not going to refer you those patients. They're going to refer you the things that they don't want in the beginning. And if they're kind enough to give you, you know, give you a revenue stream to work with, that's a gift because you're, and, and the beauty of that is they've taken all the risk. They have a revenue stream coming in and they're able to work with you, to help you grow your practice. But when you first start out, you got to figure out how to get patients in the door. Um, so it, it, it is definitely a different mindset moving forward. So personal finances, uh, you know, I, I can't stress enough. If you read, take one thing away from this, read the millionaire next door. Um, and it's not about your ego. You don't want to be a, uh, prodigious, um, you don't want to be the, uh, under accumulator of wealth. You want to be starting from day one to accumulate some wealth that gives you financial security. And so it's all right there in the millionaire next door. I, I book, I don't need to waste time on that, but you do the homework and go read it. So again, in the beginning, your goal set out. So you want to say, what, what are the, the, what's the main, what's the, uh, the end goal? One is survival in the beginning. And then two is develop yourself as an aesthetic plastic surgeon. Number two is long-term goal as that to build financial independence. Mine back then, which I achieved was to get to 55, to not have to work if I didn't want to, to be financially independent and have a net worth that was going up at least as much as my annual income, which means at that point, you don't, you know, you don't need to work anymore. You basically are financially independent. I canceled my life insurance when I was 55. My mortgages were next to nothing. And that gave me the freedom. And that was my goal. Again, very different than a lifestyle, business, which is I want to have a nice car. I want to have a fancy house. And trust me, I have a beautiful home at this point in my life career. But I was very disciplined to continue to take the revenue that we had and the, my efforts and be absolutely very prodigious about growing the practice. I didn't care what people thought about me back then. And if you really want to know some of the best philosophy out there, read Gary Vaynerchuk's book on uh, called Crushing It and then Crushed It. Again, I think Crushing It was in 2008. Crushed It was in 2016. But, you know, there are so many people out there that really, as Gary Vaynerchuk says, people run around trying to impress people they don't give a about, you know, and it's what they call the big hat, no cattle concept. So many people, and I, I don't know why physicians, maybe it's the delayed gratification thing. They're so concerned about what people think about them. And I never was worried about that. I, I For me, if I had the zeros in my bank account and our business is going well, I don't necessarily, and, and don't get me wrong, I, you know, I'm a pilot, I have some nice vehicles at this point in my life, but that was never my focus. My, my focus was to grow a good business. And, you know, if we took care of our business, it would take care of us. So um, the next thing, which isn't necessarily always easy, is, you know, pick the right spouse. If you, if you look at the millionaire next door, they talk about, you know, if you and your spouse are on two different pages, like as far as you know how you live and spend, it's hard to accumulate wealth. And I just there's a lot more detail in um you know in the millionaire next door about this, but it is hard to accumulate your wealth if you have a spouse that is not living means and a spouse that's concerned 
that your friends know who if you're driving a Mercedes versus a, a Honda minivan, for example. You know, so one of the things I'm not going to talk about in this podcast because these are you guys are all smart. You will figure these out. But there are things to that you have to line up in the beginning. Real basic, you know, trying to get our time. You know, where are you going to live? Putting policies in place in your office for HIPAA and OSHA, universal precautions, is setting up billing companies, accounting, legal, all the legal documents to make sure you're in compliance and that your employees are not going to sue you and that you're protected. Uh, employees, handbooks, wages, salaries, hiring processes. You know, how do I do? I start with one. Do I start with two? These are all logistical things I just don't have time to cover in this. You know, making sure you have a sexual harassment training when you onboard people. Purchasing groups, medical supplies, you know, so you're not overpaying, PTO, personal time off, policies for your people, maternal leave. Um, the, and if you join someone who has all these in place, maybe just have a little bit of gratitude for how much work it takes. For them to get this in place. So if you join on with someone else who's taken all of that risk, it's important that you understand uh, you know, how much work went into that. But um, I'm going to leave you with one little pearl here on the logistical side. And that is my philosophy now, and I learned this about five years ago, hire the most expensive person I could possibly afford for that position. Because that most, that, that person, okay, well, uh, and I don't know if you realize what a pearl this is, but that person will do twice as much work as the next person. And this is how we built our team, what I live by right now. And, you know, it doesn't mean, you know, if you've got a $3 million business versus a 10 versus a $20 million, your comptroller, your CFO, your, you know, obviously you can pay more because there's benchmarks that allow, you know, someone who's managing that in a $20 million business to make more money. But if you determine, that you know the position that you want to hire out is at eighty thousand dollars ninety. Maybe it take ten percent more than that, and you are very very selective in the vetting process. You get that rock star in place, and here's the deal: you're not committing to that salary all at once. You're committing to it over a year. And if the person doesn't work out in three months, you have to have the intestinal fortitude to have the difficult conversation. Let him go. But this is a serious serious pearl that took me years ago years to figure out. The only thing I'm going to tell you, because I don't need to get into office size and procedure, but the one thing you do want to do is make sure in whatever you're committing to, you do have the ability to do some in-office uh, procedures, because that will make a world of difference. Okay, let's talk about insurance versus not uh, having insurance and, you know, being, quote, all cosmetic. Um, I was just in a meeting in Las Vegas, and, you know, I heard, uh, we just had a good time, right? We had post-COVID. Everybody was spending money on cosmetic surgery. but. So I, I heard a number of the young folks getting up there and beating their chest a little bit. I know I went all cosmetic in one year or two years and okay, that's great. I mean, I think that that obviously uh, uh, an accomplishment to do, but I think you need to do some soul searching because like I always wanted to be part of a community. I didn't go to medical school just to make money. Um. And I think you need to ask yourself, you know, what's important, um, you know, what's important to you? I mean, the system pays in a lot of money to get a physician through the end of the shoot. 
In other words, somebody supplemented your income along the way, whether it's your parents, but even when your parents, you go through residency, we all think that we're helping the system. We're not really. The system is supplementing us with Medicare and Medicaid dollars to get physicians through training. So I never wanted to be that person who was just taking life. I need to know that I'm giving as much as I'm taking. So, you know, obviously we all want to be, you know, facial plastic surgeons say they want to be a Facebook or rhinoplasty surgeon, and that's really what ultimately, but, and that happens, you know, with patients in time, that happens over a period of 5, 10, 15, probably closer to 20. And I'm going to do a podcast soon, and somebody who's been out 10 years, 20 and 30 years, because there, there is a difference how much hard you have, harder you have to work at five and 10 years to get a patient to the door versus 20 and 30 years. But to me, um, you know, what I wanted to do was be part of a community and I wanted the fulfillment um, of knowing that I've made a difference in my community and not just doing another facelift. Eventually, that's how your um, practice evolves. And let me give you a couple examples of that fulfillment on my part. So I was at Dr. Slaughter's, my partner's, son's basketball game a year ago and as the game finished and we were just shooting the you know stuff with some of the, uh a woman you know yells up from the bleachers oh my gosh dr williams is that you this is my daughter and of course i come down the bleachers and it was a daughter her daughter that i took care of i resected a hemangioma changed her life blah 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 all this when she was three years old you know those kind of things mean something to me I had a 16-year-old show up unannounced to our practice a couple of years ago who had a massive nasal tip hemangioma. It was so disfigured that I took care of. And, you know, this young lady, I I mean, she's now 16 years old, and she obviously doesn't remember me, but she's seen the old photographs, and she stopped by. She wanted to meet with Dr. Williams to just tell him thank you for, you know, to tell me thank you. Um, And I got a little photograph with her. But those kind of things were always very, very important to me. Um, recently I saw a 42 year old man, um, who was run over by a state trooper car when he was 14. And that was like, how many years ago, 27, 28 years ago, I took care of him. And it was a massive facial trauma at Albany Med. And I took care of him. And he, he came back because he needed his nose fixed 28 years later. And he said to me, I don't remember you vaguely, but my family was like, the you know, spoke the world of you and the way you took care of me. So those things were always, um, always important to me. And I've heard from a lot of young people, oh, the difficulties with dealing with insurance and, you know, somewhat of a badge of honor. I decided to go no insurance day one. And yeah, that can be done. And, you know, in the last five, six, seven years, I've no longer, um, take insurance, but, you you know, uh, I don't, feel like I have to do anything more to contribute to my community because I did it for years. But, you know, and yeah, you could bypass all of this, take care of people and just going right to full cosmetic with social media a little easier now, of course, than you did years ago. But it's not that difficult um, to really take care of insurance patients. I mean, we have a separate insurance division. So we do, be- I do believe that it's important to separate them in time and space. In other words, you shouldn't have your skin cancer. Most patients coming and seeing when you're seeing facelift consult. And you're really, it's not that hard. Your billing company takes 5 to 6%. You outsource your billing. But what you do get with all of this is you build relationships that come back year and year again. You continue to be part of the community. 
and it will contribute to your um, cosmetic practice without a doubt. Okay, I'm going to tell you a few stories that uh, make me feel good, and no one who's first starting wants to hear this. But if you pick, that's why I started with geographic. If you pick the right community, it will pay off for years and years to come. I had a woman about two, three years ago came in emergency room physician for a facelift, and I like every. I always want to know, hey, where'd you come from? How'd you know about, how'd you get my name? Um, you know, I want to make sure she didn't see one of my partners and, you know, she'd go back now. But she said to me, look, Dr. Williams, I, I know you don't remember me. I'm 55 years old now, but, you know, I'm an ER physician. And back in the day, you know, when you first started, um, sort of 30 years ago, I, I, I was young. I, you know, was working in the ER. And I kept thinking to myself, because I used to see the way you conducted yourself in the emergency room. Look, I don't need a facelift, but what I do in 25 years, that's the guy I'm going to. You know, those kind of things, um, you know, make me feel like I've done the right thing. I had a hemangioma patient, a big right lower lid, lip I resected many years ago. Um, her mom, you know, about three or four years ago came in for a facelift. Um, you know, I've had medical a medical director of a big insurance company. And it's interesting because the medical, the health insurance companies know who the good doctors are because they, they know your profile. They have metrics on all of us. This medical director, I've done two facelifts on her over the past, you know, 20 years. Um, I had recent, just last week, I had a woman come in for a facelift that we scheduled and her daughter played ba uh, basketball with my daughter, 20, whatever it is. 20 years ago, 20 when my daughter's 32, and so she was in high school. Um, many of the ENT attendings that I've met over the years, you know, I've done facelifts on their wives many years later. Then one of the Mohs surgeons in our community, I did a facelift on his wife. Um, one of the Mohs surgeons that I know, I had a brow lift consult with him. Um, and it goes on and on. The chairman of the ENT department here, you know, many years ago, I did a rhinoplasty on his daughter um, and, you know, residents who have been through our program just by giving in this community three, four times. I've done facelifts on their mom, uh, residents, wives. I mean, from years ago, I did a rhinoplasty on one of them. I recently had someone that came. She He graduated 20 years ago. His wife has followed me on social media. And this is 20 years ago, decides to have a facelift. Ophthalmologist, I, I used to do a lot of postage repair. I've had three or four ophthalmologists that I can think of, that I can remember, who uh, I did a facelift on their wife. A dermatologist I met 30 years ago in Bennington, Vermont. Um, his wife comes in, you know, about five or six years ago for, for a facelift. Uh, and being involved in organizations in my community, I, you know, I don't think you should ever join a country club or, or take on the expenses of those things just to, quote, good for your business. But if you get involved with organizations and people get to know what kind of person you are, they know your level of integrity, they know what you do. You don't need to, you know, you don't need to boast about it or you don't need to boast about I'm passionate about doing facelift surgery, but they come. Um, and so, you know, there are a lot of benefits to taking care of, uh, you know, taking care of um, the community. You know. So insurance versus cosmetic, I mean, yeah, there are those 
people out there that are nowadays. I mean, you know, back in the day, I would speak at the podium. I, I, I did ran the pro bono clinics that we have. All of these things that we did back then were because we thought it was the right thing to do, so the pro bono work and that sort of thing. But now we have this new, you know, and especially you'll see it in, in you know, certain parts of the country, California, and maybe in the bigger metropolitan areas, where, you know, everyone now wants to be a celebrity doctor. And the reason they get on the podium is another posting. But that was never my goal. And maybe if that's your goal and that's what you're, you know, I think you need to ask yourself, is it really make me happy? Am I just chasing dollars? You know, that sort of thing. I mean, I find it interesting now you see these med spas pop up, right? And the only thing that, you know, they can't be passionate about Botox and uh, skinny shot or weight loss. You, you know, you can't, they're not, they're, they're different. I mean, so is the real reason they're chasing these things just money? Because let's face it, um, that's never going to make you happy. It's never going to make you fulfilled. No money and financial success come that's the byproduct of doing things the right way. And I will tell you one thing I learned from Gary Vaynerchuk with social media is this. You know, if you are fake, if you are, it, social media will find you out. Although we do see a lot of people with the take it till you make, fake it till you make it approach and they're actually doing okay. But at what cost? I mean, are you compromising your integrity? Is that why you went into medical school? So I think you need to ask yourself, um, you know, do I want to take insurance and not? But I can tell you that it's it's the backbone, even though I don't accept insurance now, it's the backbone of what built my practice. And I always tell them that the younger generations, be careful how fast your cosmetic practice grows. I've seen young colleagues of mine after two, three years stop doing cosmetic stuff because they were so enthusiastic and a little aggressive and end up with a couple of not just bad complications, but really having a tough time dealing with the unhappy patient and thinking to themselves, I don't want to go down this road. So by taking an approach of, okay, I'm going to go after, I'm going to be a really good doctor. I'm going to go after these patients as hard as I can and take good care of my community. It's a more, in my opinion, it's a more healthy way to grow your aesthetic practice that has uh, a really solid foundation. Um, you know, it's why when I retire someday, I'm not going to feel like I got to go scoop soup out soup kitchen or, or, you know, be the greeter at Walmart. And the reason why is because I, I know I've given to my community. So what I always tell our, our young third, you know, what you don't want for a start is just chase the revenue and just chase the non-surgical. Because if you're not doing a lot of surgery in the beginning, what happens is you're, first of all, you don't develop your surgical skills. And I remember talking to Katriba about this, and you reminded me of this, that you told me, make sure you get out and get out, get up into your eye, your armpits and, you know, blood and guts and surgery and become a really good surgeon first. I've seen a lot of people that end up being nothing more than procedural dermatologists because they just chase the revenue. Um, you know, I have been through the recession to 2001, 9-11, 2008, COVID. And by staying focused, we have never had to lay anyone off. And it's another reason why, you know, 
keep an, keeping an insurance component, and you can do it and segregate it. Send me some questions if you have them. But it not only allows you to take a little bit more risky approach of building your aesthetic practice, but um, it, it allows you to be part of the community. And, you know, you end up with a recession and you still have revenue coming in. I remember talking to uh, Slaughter about this when he joined us, and he took that very seriously. He went out and he built all the relationships that I told him to build. And and sure enough, we hit COVID and they shut us all down. And my you know, other partner, Polynese, and I are sitting at home not doing surgery. And Slaughter's still busy feeding his family, taking care of the essential patients. So, you know, it does allow you to kind of diversify your practice, take care of your community. So enough of the philosophical stuff, but the, the whole car, the facts are you will build a lot of lasting relationships, take care of insurance-based patients that will bear fruit in the future. And you just got to trust on that. Um, so the riches are in the name, but you know, what is not easy, doesn't work with social media is just getting out there. And I'm certainly not a social media expert, but I know that a lot of people, if you want to be successful, you have to really hone in on it. And I get that. And, you know, granted, maybe that's aging face at some point or rhinoplasty or tummy tucks. But um, again, I'm not going to really get into, because I certainly do not know, um, you know, social media, like a lot of our younger people, what we do. I, I don't believe, first of all, I don't believe that you can do it and not have a social media presence these days. You have to do it. I believe that social media has to be done um, in-house. And it's not easy. You know, it's not easy to be one of those big influencer, influencers. And again, if you have any inclination to go down that road, you know, read a lot of Dr. Uh, Gary Vee's Chuck stuff. But no one wants to see your posting, you know, buy my stuff, buy my stuff, buy my stuff, right? It's a turnoff. I mean, I block people who are just constantly serving up their services, and it's a little bit of a turnoff. Social media is meant to be social. And what if you build a social media presence, people want to get to know you. They don't care about your credentials. They want to know you have a sense of humor. They want to know you're humble. They want to get to know your personality because they're in their, in, realistically, people buy from people they know, trust, and like. And so if you're not being honest with who you are on social media, in other words, you know, trying to portray the fake it till you make it, um, people can see through that. So, you know, social media presence, my philosophy is, yeah, you got to be out there. What I try to do is to provide, yeah, the, the you know, I'm a human being, uh, show that you're humble. But. What I really like to do is teach and mentor. So a lot of our social media platform is really along the lines of teaching and mentoring in an honest way, not meant to be teaching and mentoring and, oh, by the way, come by my facelift. Um, so how do, you, you know, how do you get patience in the door? And this is where I'm going to end up because this is so important with any business that you start. How the heck do I get patience in the door to come buy stuff for me. Well, up until 2015, we had absolutely no marketing presence at all. In fact, we had a website. It was lame. Um, and I realized that you know we had to start doing something in 2000. 
15, and that's another whole conversation. We have three full-time people where we're getting to add to that team. But in the beginning, you can't afford that. So really what it comes down to is a grassroots effort. No one's going to meet you and call, you know, to book a facelift. It doesn't work that way or a rhinoplasty. So let me just tell you my experience with the emergency room and how I built and things that worked and things that didn't work. Sitting down, so if you're just starting out, sitting down and writing letters um, to every physician in your region, waste of time, waste of money, okay? Writing a big, lofty, you know, uh, who your credentials are and a picture of you and your white lab coat and you came from Harvard, waste of time. People don't care about that. I learned this from some of the marketing people. They want to know who you are. Um, you know, running around, I, I gave, gosh, I gave lectures to family docs, skin cancer, I gave lectures on some protection. Um, another waste of time, you know, quite frankly. And in the early years, what I did is I, I just, you know, because the people that I see that are surviving, starting practice, are true people with true, true grit and hard work and are willing to do the things no one else had done. You may be, a, may have been a hell of a resident and a hell of a fellow and a hell of a medical student, but what it takes to really build a practice that's sustainable for decades in relationships is grit and hard work. Well, I'll just give an example of what I did. I mean, I, I went out with three emergency rooms at the turn of the shift, so 7 a.m., 3 p.m., and 11 p.m., I would walk through, I'd meet the ER docs, I'd tell them who I was, and, and no one wants to hear, oh, send me patients, right? But I would just say, say, listen, I want you to be able to put a name and face. Here's my card. If for some reason you can't get through to someone, I know you got a call schedule, but if you can't get through to someone, you know, I don't care if the patient doesn't have insurance, I'm here to take, help you out. And slowly, you know, and I wanted to do the turn shift. Someone was coming on at 3 o'clock, I know they're there for the next seven or eight hours. And I did that, and that's how I got my phone to ring. And I'm not going to tell you about the bumps in the road and challenges people tried to run me out of the ER, but that all happened. Same thing I did with every potential referral source that I could possibly, um, that I could possibly make. So here is the secret sauce of trying to build a relationship, sustainable practice that will pay dividends for decades. Okay. It all comes down to relationships and building relationships. No one wants to hear, you know, and it may feel a little awkward to go around and introduce yourself to people, but if you're genuine and honest with it, it's not awkward at all because you're there to help them out. Now, I always tell people, take a 90-mile radius around where you live, and Katrine told me he did four hours, so that's obviously more than three hours, but he did basically what I said. And you go out and meet everyone that could potentially send you a patient or a relationship. So, for example, for a facial plastic surgeon, that might be all the otolaryngologists, all the Mo surgeons, all the dermatologists, estheticians, um, or maybe even allergists. You know, allergists in a, in a city that may be an hour from here, they may not want to send to their otolaryngologist because their otolaryngologist is going to steal their allergy case. But they're not threatened by you as a facial plastic surgeon. I picked that up on a picked that up on a podcast that I gave to someone. If you're a plastic surgeon, maybe it's the GYN, you know, uh, community, bariatric. Uh, they have bariatric physicians that are, you know, need these patients need pannus resection, and they need 
they, they, they need breast reduction and those sorts of things. Um, I have a colleague of mine who I have a tremendous amount of respect, Jose Barrera. He's in, in Texas, and he has a background in maxillofacial stuff and uh, orthognathic. So he went around and met all of the orthodontists in his region and has given him a huge referral base. There is no shortcut for taking the time to do this stuff. Now, I'm going to tell the approach that I would take to meet these people because it works. It absolutely works. No one, if you call up and say, you know, you want to meet the doctor and you go and you tell them that you're passionate about the facelift, passionate about rhinoplasties, or passionate about Botox, right? You're going to be a turnoff because what these doctors, and, and yeah, it's going to be awkward, but these doctors don't care about that. What they care about is how, how can you help them? So here's the approach that I would recommend. Take, I call the office. Uh, Dr. Smith is in Bennington, Vermont. I call the doctor's office and I say, hi, this is Dr. Uh, Smith from Albany and, um, or Dr. You know, Dr. Jones from Albany and, uh, you know, I'm a facial plastic surgeon. I, I just wanted to find maybe a time that I could meet, you know, or actually, could I speak with Dr. Uh, Jones's um, uh, primary nurse? And, um, and then they put you on the phone. Now, if you talk to um, his nurse or her nurse and you say who you are and you would like to meet the doctor, you're new and you want to meet the doctor just so that they could put a name with a face. And especially if you're affiliated with a center, they might know. Uh, I'm, the, I'm affiliated with the Smith Center in Columbus, Ohio. And I'm the new guy, and I just want to be able to introduce myself, put a name to face, and just you know let you know who I am. Um, that nurse is going to say, "Yeah, sure." Um, you know, and they say, "Listen, I, I don't want to take a lot of the doctor's time. I know they're busy. Just wondering, maybe I could swing by a time, like at the end of a day, for ten or fifteen minutes before they head home. You know, what day of the week works best for Doctor Jones? Like, you know, for the end of the week, and they're going to give you a time frame." And then you try to work around it and get there. If you don't have it right in front of you, you say, can I call you back? And what's your name again? And, you know, um, and then when you when you go there, obviously, make sure you're not late. You make sure you're on time. Um, but you will never have more time to put into this process than at the very beginning of your career. And it seems like you don't have a lot of time now, but you'll never have more time than you do right this very moment to build those relationships that will send you, like I said, dermatologist 20 years ago sends me his wife for a facelift because I helped him out or her out. I helped them out over a number of years, take care of some of their patients to solve some of their product problems. You know, when you go to that practice, maybe, you know, it's a uh, Hudson, New York, you find out there's a specialty bakery near the court, something that's kind of new and you know, uh, in vogue in the area, and maybe you pick up some cookies, bring them to the front desk, and you know, you give them, and then just talk to the doctor at the end of the day. Trust me, they're gonna when you leave, they're gonna say, "Oh my gosh, she was so nice! I can't believe how nice she is." And so, what I do when I am meeting those doctors, I basically say, "Hey, I got my you know, my approach is you know, how can I help?" Um. How can I help that doctor in what they're trying to accomplish? Um, 
you let them know you accept Medicaid, you accept insurance, but that's how you gain access to them. Uh, no one really wants to go out to dinner. Um, and like I said, the best time I found is at the end of the day toward the end of the week. And then, you know, find some things, some functional things that you can really help them out with. Uh, and what I always said was, look, I realize you have an established referral pattern and, you know, I'm not looking to change that. I just want to, if you ever have a difficult time getting through to Dr. X or your, your referral people, just keep me in mind. Here's my cell number. And by the way, you know, listen, I have an amazing staff, amazing team, but if for some reason you're ever having a hard time getting through my front desk, just call myself and give them your card. And, you know, you may get into a conversation at three seconds, three minutes, or 30 minutes. I've had, back in the day, one of the referring dermatologists, I got to build a really good relationship, said, oh my gosh, come on in. And we sat and we talked for 30 minutes or so. If you get that opportunity, you know, find out what's important to them. Find out what their special interests are. They're a dermatologist. Maybe they have a special interest in inflammatory stuff. Or um, maybe find a common interest. Get a chance to talk, talk to them about their family. I know this sounds like common sense, and it is, but it doesn't have to be an awkward meet. As long as you're reading the room and you're not taking your time and enforcing, enforcing yourself upon them. because if you if you are going to you know, just network, or there's a book called Never Eat Alone. I'd encourage you to read it. You know, it basically puts down the old networking techniques. You're you're there to help them solve problems, help them take care of their patients. And if that comes across genuine, if it if you can't do it and make it genuine, then you probably shouldn't do it at all, right? Um. So that's the approach that I always took, and it will make a good impression on their team. And then the key is communicate, communicate, communicate. My partner, Slaughter, does an amazing job with this. If he has a patient comes in, the big Mo's case, takes the picture, sends it back to the, constantly commu keep communicating to that office, to that doctor, if they do give you a chance. You might need 10 and maybe only two send you patients. Eventually, that may end up being four, and then you may lose one. And, you know, don't ever take anything for granted, ever, ever, ever. You know, whether it's thanking your people for the referrals, um, eventually your name comes up somewhere. Somebody wants to rhinoplasty, and they're like, oh my gosh, Dr. X is amazing. You know, and, and that goodwill and trust is transferred on to the cosmetic patient that ultimately they end up referring. I'm telling you, it works. Um, if you ever notice it, like Dr. X stopped sending you patients, go visit them again. I'll tell you a story. I, I had uh, a referral in about an hour south. It was a dermatologist. And all of a sudden, like, I just noticed one day that they weren't sending patients. In. So I went down there, you know, and I, I, same, same approach. I'd been in practice 15, 20 years. I went down there and said, hey, you know, I noticed whatever, has there been a problem? And he said, and you know, it was the end of a day. It was a Thursday. Dr. Schaefer, he told me that we sit in the room and he says, as a matter of fact, Ed, I did have a problem with your front desk. You know, we had a patient who, whatever, you did something on him. They did a scary vision. They weren't 100% happy. And someone at your front desk was pretty indignant with my patient and didn't want them to see you. They wanted them to see your junior person. And, you know, it. 
kind of just rubbed me the wrong way. I apologized. I said, you know, I gave my phone number, cell number again, and guess what? The referrals started opening back up. So just like your relationship at home with your kids, with your family, don't ever, 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 ever take a relationship for granted. You know, some of the other things you can do, you know, seminars on, and again, no one wants to go to a big seminar and facelift. They don't want to look, but nowadays you can do a lot of this stuff on social media, but the approach is still the same. Um, and I know I kind of sound like I'm beating a dead horse, but putting the hard work in on the front end pays off on the back end. And this isn't, you know, the boomer approach. As of very recently, I've talked to a number of the young docs that I have mentored over the years on how to start scratch practice from scratch, who've been extraordinarily successful. And all they did was follow my need and do exactly what I told them to do. These are relationships, whether they're cosmetic or not, they will pan out in the future. Social media is a total plus, a total boom if you can do it correctly. Um, but the approach that is used, whether it's social media or not, same. As I reflect upon this podcast, there are a few absolutely critical comments that I need to clarify and expand upon just a little bit in order to make the most of your time. The first really is that there are a few key components to those who become extremely successful in building their practice and scaling up their business. The first and I, I've had about 24 fellows now, and I can always tell the ones who are going to tell to do extremely well because they have one common denominator. And it's not fancy training. It's not the best training. It's not graduating from Harvard. It's grit. Absolute grit. Hardcore grit for survival. And and I think that's so important because that's what pushes you beyond your comfort level when things become uncomfortable and awkward in starting your practice. I got my grit as a high school wrestler. You know, um I had very few losses, but when you lose as a wrestler, you can't blame anyone else. And I also worked on a dairy farm for 10 years. Those things humbled me both of those experiences 10 years i worked in a dairy farm picking rocks scraping you know manure every single day um but i gained a tremendous amount of satisfaction from that accomplishment so grit cannot be minimized the second thing and read keith ferrazzi's book on never eat alone when you're meeting people or networking people, it's not about you. It's not about networking. And to summarize his book in one sentence, it basically says, health, wealth, and children. How can you help someone with their health, their wealth, and their children? And so when you're meeting that new physician relationship, think about how can you help them with their practice, 
that's their wealth, their family, or their health. And if you always keep this in mind, the meeting is not an awkward meeting. You're not asking them to network. You're not asking them to send you patients. You're asking, what can I do for you? What can I do for you to help you? And it is a very, again, it's very comfortable doing that because you're there to help. You're there to serve. So as you go around and you drive 60 miles to meet someone to say thank you, um, and again, I've done this 15 years in practice when someone's a new referral who sends me a patient. Uh, how can I help you? I want to be here for you. Um, you know, I have a particular interest in ptosis repair, and I know you're an ophthalmologist and maybe you do your own, but in, in the event, you know, let me help you out, or I know you have a referral pattern. I'm not looking to, you know, disrupt that. But if you do have a challenge, feel free to call me and let me help you in any way I can. And by the way, what are your particular interests in ophthalmology? And, you know, how, tell me about your family. And next thing you know, you find out their daughter, and this has happened to me, is trying to get into a college that you have a relationship with. You open a few doors and they will never forget that. And that's how you build a strong relationship. And that's how you build a strong practice. So I hope this addendum... Uh, serves you well and maybe inspires you to get out there and make it happen and not to beat a dead horse but there are some things that are critical because I've heard people say well I you know I just can't get in to see the doctor uh, by the way these phone calls that you make to your potential relationship need to be made by you and why I say that is I've had associates in the past, partner, who basically, yeah, I took my advice, but said to our team, our manager, oh, could you call Dr. Smith's his office? Um, don't do that. Okay, first of all, you're, you're not going to get in to see the doctor if you have your manager call or your nurse call. You need to pick up the phone. You need to humble yourself. And... Call that office and let them hear your voice that you're interested in. You're humbling yourself to come meet Dr. X. Again, I, I thought it was so important to add this into the podcast because I've had colleagues of mine in the past who say, it didn't work for me. Well, it didn't work because they tried to not delegate. They tried to abdicate that responsibility. And that responsibility if you really want to serve and be, build a relationship and help someone, that responsibility belongs to you. Yes, one more piece of advice um, is the other second component in addition to grit for those who I see become extremely financially successful and happy, not just fulfilled, but happy, are those that have an open mind are willing to be coached, willing to take criticism, and continue to develop their personal, professional skills. And how do you do that? You read, and you read a lot. I'm constantly, if the average CEO reads something like 25 to 50 books a month, a year. Um, there's a reason why. <clears throat> if you want to be at that level, um, it's not by just pounding out another face, it's by being a better leader and being open-minded and coachable. And the final last thing is 
as a leader, you need to set the pace. You need to be the pace car. You need to work harder than anyone else. And again, I think I got that from my wrestling background. I always knew the same thing with working on the farm. I could beat my competition by outworking them. Um, and, uh, you know, outworking them doesn't mean to not get home for dinner. Okay, outworking them doesn't mean to miss your kids' things. I never missed any of my kids' sporting events. Outworking means being as efficient and effective as possible to deliver 150% 150% of the time to you, your team and your patients and those who send you patients and any other potential relationship you have while also protecting you and your family and your personal time, which is absolutely critical for your health and happiness. So thank you for listening and, and best of luck if you have any topics, any criticisms, any thoughts. If you're interested in my reading list, um, we can send that on. Just drop me an email.